Amen. I invite you to take your scriptures this morning and turn back to that passage we read just a few moments ago in Romans chapter 12. And we'll be looking through verses 14 through 21. It doesn't take much to understand and observe that everyone in our culture right now is pushing for what they think matters. Um, Some are pushing for black lives matter. Others are countering with all lives matter. But I would like to come from a different perspective and give you an alternative way to think. And that would be your response matters. And that's what I think is emphatic in the passage that we're looking at today. As I mentioned just a few moments ago, Romans 12, 9 through 13, we talked about last Wednesday, is how we respond in love when we have differences inside the church with each other. And I want to build on that. And our text today is primarily about responding together to those outside of our church. Not just when we have disagreements, but when even hostilities have come about. Persecutions, mistreatments. Um, To understand what the Romans were going through and why Paul needed to address that, you have to understand that this epistle was written when Nero um, was Caesar and was beginning his reign. And, And you know anything about him He was notoriously cruel and torturous and evil and sinful. And Paul was already addressing that the persecution was beginning to take place. And if you read history, you know that it's only going to get much worse. And that was the context of the remarks that are being made. And all of the remarks made in our passage, the one last Wednesday and the one this morning, flow out of the beginning verses in 1 and 2 of Romans 12 that we're all very familiar with. Um, and, and what he wants the Christians in Rome to know, and he wants the Christians today in America to know, namely us, is that if you're going to live in peace inside the church or with those outside the church, you're going to have to have a different mindset. And so he admonishes them with the imperative in verse 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. And this transformation is by a renewing of your mind. It's a different way of thinking. And he immediately tells them, and it really does help us to understand the remainder of Romans 12, that this is a kind of thinking that is completely out of step with our world. It doesn't conform to how the average person inside, unfortunately, and and even more so outside the church, thinks about issues and relationships and how we uh, reflect true humanity. And so he wants us all to know, and we want to start on that basis, that this mindset that we have is based on the fact that as Christians we have received mercies of God. That's chapters 1 through 11, and he ends with this doxology that he can't get over, and he has to worship God and say, God, your mercies are amazing. They're far more than what we deserve. And so he says in verse 1 of chapter 12, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercy, so these mercies that God has brought us salvation and redemption and reconciliation, it's the basis by which I'm going to make all the comments about horizontal relationships. You look to your relationship with God and see the mercy that he's shown to you and saving you and grafting you in if you are a Gentile. He says, I want you to know that that should overflow on a horizontal level. And that's the kind, it's a mercy mentality is what he's looking for. And so he says, now take that mercy mentality that God has showed you, and I want you to use that to transform the way you think about your responses 
to people inside and outside the church. We might even, if we created a formula, we might say, here's the mindset, mercy in, mercy out. That's what Paul is after. And in verse 3, he starts to build on that inside the church by the little word for at the beginning. And for by the grace of God. He uses it again at the beginning of verse 4. And he's building an argument. And here's what he's going to do. And now he's going to start to talk to everybody. He says, for by the grace of God, in verse 3, given to me, I say to everyone. So whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, no matter who you are, and I would say the same thing in our church, no matter who you are and how you differ from anyone else, Paul has a message for you and what he's going to do in these opening verses and then what he's going to also replicate in our passage and why I'm talking to you now about the earlier verses is going to use this construction called not but. Not this, but in contrast, but this. And I want to show you how he's building his argument because I want to use it to build mine as well. So he says, let God's mercy show you how to think in response to other people who are different than you and even mistreat you. And so he says, in chapter 12 and verse 3, he says, for the grace of God given, I say to everyone among you, here it is, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Three times he's telling you how to think. But, in contrast, see, not, but, but to think with sober judgment. In other words, don't have these grandiose ideas and think that you're better and superior to everybody else, he says, but think Seriously, think soberly about yourself. And, and, and this is in the context of how you use your gifts in the church. So don't think because your gifts are more flashy and more prominent that you're better than everybody else. He says, no, think soberly because we're a body. We have unity. And God uses all the different kinds of gifts. And can I add all the different kinds of people in a church to accomplish his purposes? Now, he already had did that in Verse 2, and so he did it in verse 3. Let me see it in verse 2 again. He says, and be not, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. See it? Not in verse 2, not this, but this. He does it again to tie it together in verse 3. Not this, but this. And so here's what he's saying to all of us. Please get it. you got to understand this at the very beginning of the message today. That what these passages are asking of you, starting out with 12, 1 and 2, is that you cannot relate to people rightly who differ with you in the church or mistreat you outside the church if you do it based on what you would normally and naturally think. If you are doing what is natural, you're not going to do these things in this text. In fact, you're going to listen to me and think, that is impossible, Pastor Walker. You're crazy. That's not realistic. And it will not be if you are thinking and therefore acting to what comes naturally. But Paul says, see, no, we've been given the mercies of God. And so we can think and we can act, not naturally, but supernaturally. So he says in verses 3 through 8, think about God's glory and about the good of others and do that and use that with the gifts that you have. Not only think differently based on God's mercy to those inside the church, but now, he says, now I want you to think differently in response to those outside the church, right? So he's going to give the construction of the not and but thing in our text three times. And that's my argument this morning, and I want to share it with you. The first one, and I'm going to come back to the verses before and after it, The first time he uses this construction, if you'll read it with me, is verse 16. Live in harmony with one another, he says. Live in harmony with one another. And again, 
Four times in our text, he uses the word mind or to think. He's building on the same argument he had earlier. I want you to regard people. That's what the word think means. Think logically, think sensibly, according to God's mind, ministry mindset. This is how you think and this is how you respond to people. Live in harmony. It means literally in the Greek to think the same thing. And the term does not mean that I think the same thing, meaning we never disagree on how we think about issues. That's not the idea. It's the idea of thinking the same way about things, about how we should handle ourselves, how we should respond to things. In other words, have the same mentality that even though there are times we may disagree, that we're going to think the same way about how we should handle the disagreements. And so he says, let me show you what that looks like. When you live in harmony and think the same way about how things should be handled despite the disagreements, that's where our construction comes in in verse 16. He says, here's how you live in harmony. You don't do this, but you do this. In contrast, see, don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly, he says. Don't do what's natural, because the natural way to think is when you disagree with someone, the most important thing is that you're right, and that you're better because your answer is right, and that makes you superior to them, and therefore we breed division and contempt, he says. But don't think that way, because our natural way to think is an upward view of ourselves, to think highly of ourselves, that's what haughty is, to think high and think that my views are right, and I don't really need to listen to anybody else. He says that's what natural people do when they think. He goes, but see, not that, but this, he says, but associate with the lowly. And lowly sounds like it's a word about humility, and in one sense it is, but it's not about exhibiting personal humility. It's rather about associating with people who have been humbled by their life circumstances, people who are now humbled by the difficulties that they face. Here's what he says. Don't just think haughty, high things of yourself, but the supernatural thing is not to think high, but to think low. Not to think that I'm only going to associate with people who have the same views I have or like me in every way. He says, no, see, when you get it right and you think contrast to what you naturally would do, see, then you'll think lowly. You'll think that, you know what, I need to associate with other people and their circumstances and what they went through. Now, this is no better in anywhere in the world, better exemplified than with our Lord Jesus. In fact, the word lowly, is used to describe, he uses it, that word to describe himself in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11 and verse 29. And may I park here just for a moment because it's absolutely crucial. There are 89 chapters in all four Gospels. And only one time in all those 89 chapters about the biography of our Lord Jesus Christ, does he ever himself tell you about the description of his own heart? Only one time. Now, you know, the heart in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, is not primarily just a place where you share or show your emotions, although that's included. It's really the seat or the center of who you are. That's what your heart is. Your heart is what moves you to do what you do, to get out of bed every day. It moves you and, and, and drives you to be passionate about what you really are aiming to accomplish in life. And when it comes to Jesus, he says, let me tell you about what it means to have God's heart. Ready? He doesn't say, he says in verse 28, he says, come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden or burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Ready? For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus says, you want to know what I'm like? 
here's what I am. I'm gentle. I'm meek. I power it. He says, I don't, I don't live to love, to have the power of love. I'm sure the love of power, but the power of love, he says. Now notice, in his own heart, he doesn't say, my heart is austere and harsh. My heart is even joyful and happy. That's not what he says. No, it, it, he chooses these two words amongst all other words. And here it is, gentle and lowly. Here's what he says, my heart is so gentle and I have such a power of love in my life that you know what it does? It makes me associate with lowly people for people who are downtrodden, people that no one else wants to hang around with, people that are marginalized. See, that's the heart of Jesus. And so here's what it means in the first contrast. He says, don't be haughty. Don't think that high of yourself and only hang around people like that. He says, but instead, don't associate with people who just think like you do. He says, associate with lowly people, people with different backgrounds and circumstances and needs that you have. So he says, I don't want to get away from people who differ from me. I want to get close to them, he says. No, I I want to associate with them. And you know what? And, And then he admonishes us at the end of the verse to say this, never be wise in your own sight. Don't become the kind of person that in your own estimation that you got it all down these high thoughts about yourself and you're not really caring about other people and their circumstances and situations. He says, see, now that's the kind of mentality that flows out of mercy. That's not natural. That's supernatural. And so I love the verses right before verse 16 and right after verse 16, which is the construction. You know, here's why I love them. You know why? Because he doesn't leave us saying, well, here's some, some truth without knowing how it looks. He says, let me tell you what it looks like when I respond the right way because I'm thinking the right way with this mercy mentality, he says. So what will it look like? Verses 14 and 15 that are before the construction, the not but construction, they look like this. Bless those who persecute you and do not curse them, he says. Bless and do not curse them. Here's the first thing. When you have this mercy mentality and you're not haughty, but you're associating with lowly people. You know what it means? It means this. It will change your verbal response to them. Here's what the words that come out of your mouth because they come out of your heart. You will not curse people. See the contrast again? You're not going to do this. You're not going to curse. Instead, you're going to bless. Now, I'll have to say, I, I don't read a lot on social media. But when I do, I'll have to say that far, far outweighing the, the blessing going on from people is the cursing right now, by far. I haven't seen much of the blessing going on. I haven't seen people's words, whether verbally or written form, thinking any of these types of thoughts very often anyways. In fact, I think it would be good for us to remind you what James says about this very subject of blessing and cursing. Listen to what he says about the tongue, and we would all do well to listen to this wisdom. He says, don't ever forget that even when you're a Christian, your tongue is never fully tamed. And then he goes on to use these little phrases to describe what you think are not Christian people's words, but they are, he says. That the tongue, if you're not careful, it is a fire. But it's not just any fire that burns people. It is a fire, James's word, from hell, he says. He also calls the words that come out of our mouth restless evil. Another place in the same chapter, he says that our tongues can be Full or filled with, listen to this, deadly poison. I, I remember growing up, I went to public school 
they wanted to be popular. So I got into this group of guys who did sports, and everybody used bad language. I mean, everybody. And so, of course, I, I being a Christian, I, I didn't want to be the only one who didn't or be made fun of us. So I started using bad words, and, and I started using them on a regular la- uh, basis. And I remember coming home one time, and I think my dad was at work in the summer, and my mom said something, and she said, I want you to do this. And I said, there ain't no way in <laughs> that I'm doing it. Now, I, I, I was stunned myself because I, I would never talk like that in front of my mom. You know what my mom said? Come here. So this is me when I'm in like eighth grade. So I got to be 14 or so. She took me in the sink and she said, here's the soap. And she said, open your mouth. So she, here's my mom. She washed my, my mouth out with soap. I, to this day, I've never forgotten that. Not only was it gross in its taste, but it was humiliating. It really was embarrassing. And, but you know, over time, you know what I've learned? That the tongue can not only be dirty, but it can be dangerous. I mean, it's not just dirty with filth. It's dangerous with fire. And it can burn people's lives. James goes on to say this, and, and it's like, be surprised. He wants you to be surprised. He says, with it, with it, meaning our mouth, we bless God. And with the same mouth, he says, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth, listen to this, comes blessing and cursing. He says, Christians, my brethren, these things ought not to be so, he says. So here's what he says, the first contrast. Not haughty, not this. And here's what it looks like in front of it. It means that we bless people. We're not trying to get away from people by having a haughty mentality, but we're getting close to them, right? And here's what he says. It not only changes verbally, listen to this. It changes things relationally. Now, this is a hard thing to imagine. He says in verse 14, he says, verse 15, I'm sorry, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, naturally, some people might rejoice when other people that are so against them and have hurt them are weeping. You might rejoice and you might say, hey, they're finally getting what they deserve. Or you might weep when people who are evil get ahead in life. You might weep when they're rejoicing. That would be natural. But he says, if you're going to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, see, that's supernatural. You can't just, you know, pull that out of a hat. That comes from having a mercy mentality. So it not only affects the way you are verbally, it affects relationally. So you're going to get close enough to the people who are harming you And you're going to think about them. In fact, Jesus says, and you'd be praying for them, Matthew chapter 5, to the point where you would weep with them when they're weeping and rejoice with them when they're rejoicing. See, it doesn't just change how we talk to people who are mistreating us. It changes how we treat them as well. So what he's really saying to us is it affects us verbally, relationally, and even physically with our actions because he doesn't want us to think about how we can get back at them. He doesn't want us to think about how we can get up one on them. And he doesn't want us to think about how we can make them pay for what they've done. And see, that's part of what's taking place. That's why the rioting and the looting and the violence have taken place after George Floyd's death is not the right response to it. It's not the response, right response to his death. It's not the right response to anything It never is. There is good protest and there is evil and bad protest. And writing and such is not good. 
See, as Christians, I alluded in my prayer, we ought to be the kind of people who have the ability to condemn both. We condemn because of the unjust tragedy of, of George Floyd's death, and we also, at the same time, can condude, con, uh, condemn rioting and looting and violence that comes as a result of it. And, to add, we should also be able to say, yeah, those are all wrong, but here's something right. The police officer that committed the crime, he was wrong, but we can still be the kind of people who encourage the police officers, the vast majority by far, who are doing the right thing. You know why? Because look what he says at verse 17. But give thought to do what is honorable, he says. What is honorable in the sight of all. So Pastor Walker, does this mean that we are just doormats for people to walk over? Does it mean that we can't disagree or even talk about being disagreement with certain things? No, no, no. It it doesn't mean those things at all. But it does mean this, that no matter what the conflict is and no matter what the difference and even literally the extent of it, Paul says, here's your responsibility, verse 18. If possible, and it always means that it may not be. So your job and my job in all of this and other situations like it is to pursue peace, knowing that we need to do our best even though it may not result in what we want. And please, please listen. You cannot speak the right things and relate to people the right way and do it verbally, relationally, and physically and say, well, it didn't do any good because they didn't change because you are not in control of the results. (laughs) We don't just do things pragmatically because it, it engenders all the consequences or results that we want them to. No, we do it's right. what's right because God asked us to. So he says, I want you to pursue peace, and I want you to do it with peaceful words and peop- peaceful relationships, and I want you to do it with peace, peaceful actions. He goes, but if it doesn't turn everybody around, at least not a right, right away, you still need to pursue it, he says. Because if it's possible, he says... And here's the key part, so far as it depends on you, literally to the extent that it's up to you, not because other people are or aren't doing it. No, it's your responsibility. It's not whether other people are taking their responsibility seriously or other people are doing what's right. No, it's you, he says. To the extent that you, literally in the Greek, within your own power, if peace is possible, and it may not always be, Within your power, pursue it, he says. And I think pursuing it is all the verse things he's talked about in verses 14 through 17 up until this verse. All the things verbally, relationally, physically in your actions. If you're doing all those things, that's what it means to go after peace. And even if you do all those things, he says, it may not turn out how you want. At the end of verse 17, at the end of verse 18, and it's hard to see in the English, but in the original language, it's obvious. He says, let me show you what it means to try to go after possible peace. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. The little word of all at the end of 18, and of, it says in the sight of all in verse 16, I should say, I'm sorry, verse 17, those are the same words. All men. In other words, don't pay evil to evil to anyone, but do good to all people. And let me, and he says this, and then live peaceably if you can with all people. And they go together, see? To live peaceably with everyone is to do good to everyone. You cannot pursue peace, Paul would say, and vengeance at the same time. 
You can't. You can't do it. That's not what it means to fulfill your responsibility as a believer. Second contrast, and he's building his argument, the same not but antithetical idea. He says, let me tell you how to think again. Verse 19. Beloved, and he wants you to know he's family, never avenge yourselves. Here's the thing you don't do. Do not avenge yourself. Don't take justice into your own hands, he says. But in contrast to that, literally leave a place. And in the ESV, it says, but leave it to the wrath of God. Leave it a place. Leave it an opportunity for God to do something in the circumstance. In other words, when things go wrong and people mistreat you for whatever the reasons might be, whether it's racism or anything else, here's what he says. Don't take justice into your own hands, rioting, etc. No, here's what he says. You leave a place for God's judgment. Let God take care of, of them. Not because it's wrong to pursue peaceful forms of justice, but don't take justice into your own hands, Don't try to put yourself in the place of God, i.e. Joseph. Joseph, if anyone had in the Old Testament a reason why to take justice in his own hands, his brothers sold him into slavery when he was only 17. And for the next 13 years of his life, he was a slave. He was in and out of prison. He was overlooked, left for dead, basically in the prison. But God delivered him. And when he did, he put him up to second in charge to Pharaoh. And his brothers come along and it's during a famine and they need food. And they come to him not knowing who he is. He finally reveals himself to him. And you know what the whole thing after he asks or tells them he's going to forgive them and treats them right? At the end of the book of Genesis in chapter 50, they're still worried about it because their dad is dead now. And Jacob is gone. And now will Joseph really give us what he thinks we deserve? In the famous text in chapter 50, verses 19 to 21, it begins and ends with a little bookend phrase, don't be afraid. And here's what Joseph wanted his brothers to know. I don't think naturally. I think supernaturally. Do you understand the mercies that God has shown me and bringing me here and delivering me out of prison and the mercy he showed me to elevate me in Egypt's government to this high so I could be in the place to provide for my family even though they mistreated me, he says. Do you understand the mercies that he has lavished on me? He says, don't be afraid. Then he says this, listen, am I in the place of God? It's not my job to bring judgment and wrath on you. He says, that's, jo- that's God's job. Listen, if God's going to judge you, and by the way, any judgment we could give to anybody because of their mistreatment of us is nothing compared to what God can and may do. And Joseph says, I'm not in the place of God. Now listen, you might say, okay, so Pastor Walker, I'm just going to sit back and hope that God will take care of things, and maybe if he doesn't hear, he'll do it ultimately. Is that all you're saying? I said, no, because Joseph's not done. Because when you leave a place for the wrath of God, whether he brings judgment now or sometime later if people don't repent, it does not mean, hear me, it does not mean that we ignore or downplay the evil of what those people have done to us. Here's what he says to his brothers. Don't be afraid. I'm not in the place of God. You meant it for evil. Same verb in both phrases. You meant it. You purposed it for evil. But God, now listen, he didn't allow it. You meant it purposely, but God meant it for good. In other words, God's purposes 
always, always are over any purposes of men, including the evil ones, see? And unless you believe that and act upon it, See, you're going to want to take justice into your own hands. You're going to want to be judge and jury. And God says, here's what you can't do, the not side of the second one. See, you can't take vengeance yourself, he says in verse 19. But leave it in contrast to the wrath of God. And then he's going to give biblical support for it. And he quotes Deuteronomy 32, 35. And it's the very quotation in your text which says, vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. You read that verse and its context in Deuteronomy 32, you know what it is? It's Moses writing a song of victory after God delivered them out of 400 years of slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. And see, they didn't try to attack the Egyptians. They didn't try to enact revenge over all the horrible atrocities that Pharaoh and killing and the infanticide and the slavery and the harsh work and the terrible treatment. It was awful what Pharaoh did. But they didn't try to take justice into their own hands. They let God take care of it. And he did it in such a way that he judged the oppressor and glorified his name. And we call it the Red Sea. See? Verses 19 and 20, in that conclusion with this, with another contrast, vengeance is mine, I will pray. Verse 20 says, to the contrary, and it's really the single word, but. See, it's this one, this construction has not this, but this. And let me give you one more contrast when I use but. To verse 20, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Oh, that's a big word, isn't it? And it's hard right now to even maybe say that word, enemy, right? Here's what he says you do to your enemies. We feed them if they're hungry. If our enemies are parched with thirst, we give them drink. How in the world, Pastor Walker, would you ever expect us to do that? How can we do such things? How can we have such treatment to people who are enemies and that have hurt us and mistreated us to this extent? How in the world is that even possible? Well, let me read you another verse in Romans. Chapter 5 and verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You see the little phrase, while we were enemies? In Romans 5, Paul is saying, I want you to stop right where you are and all the differences between Jew and Gentile. I want you to stop. And I want to remember what God did for you. Mercy mentality. In verse 6, he says, while we were still weak. Verse 8, while we were still sinners. And while we were, that was all going on, he says. And then he concludes with the climax, verse 10, that I just read you. And while we were still enemies, see, when, when, when you were weak and had no strength to even come to God, and you never would, while you were still sinners, you had your hand in God's face and you wanted nothing to do but rebel against his word. When you were his enemies and God saw you as such, see, while all that was going on, it says, that's when I sent my son. He says in the text, you know what's natural? He says, in, in our world, he says, you might dare, some might even dare to die for a really good person. 
What's natural is I, I, I show kindness and love to people who are good to me and are really nice to me and agree with me and are like me, he says. But that's not what Jesus, he says. Some people would even dare to die for a right, but God, not him. You know what God is like? He dies for people who are opposite of him, antithetical to him, opposed to him, that hate him. And that's why Jesus has the platform to say in Matthew chapter 5, You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's the natural approach. But I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who despitefully use you. For if you love those who also love you, what reward do you have, Jesus asks. Here's a stinger. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Oh, Pastor Walker, how do I respond to George Floyd's death? By remembering the son of God's death. That's how. How do I treat my enemy like that? Can I say it nicely? Because that's exactly how God treated you when you were his enemy. He did it with mercy. And when you do that, he says in verse 20, you will heap coals of fire on their head. And you can read as many books and come up with as many interpretations of what that means. I'm not sure what it means, whether you're going to bring burning shame on his life and he'll finally figure out that he's doing wrong when you love him like that. Maybe you're going to bring judgment and he'll know that he is being judged by God for his treatment. I'm not sure what it means, but in the context, I know it means this, that we do not retaliate. But instead, we do good. And that leads me to the last verse, the last contrast. Not this, but this. Number three, third one in verse 21 says this. Do not be overcome by evil, but, in contrast, overcome evil with good. To be a Christian, to be a Jesus follower, is not just refusing to retaliate, but also in its place, to do something good for someone else, even the one who perpetrates the evil. See, Christian victory is twofold. It's not just the first thing. Christians are not just people who don't retaliate. That's good stuff, but it's not good enough. See, the way to not be overcome by evil is not only refusing to retaliate and take vengeance, but also to do good in its place. So here's how you practice this. You go back on the internet or people you've talked to in person or things that you've written that were not righteous or, or kind or wrong on the internet. You go back and talk to the people that you've talked wrongly to, the people you've treated wrongly, and pursue peace. Don't let evil overcome you in your passion for your position. Practice a mercy mentality, not because you can't disagree, not because we should compromise truth in any way, shape, or form, but because in holding the truth, we speak it in love. Bonhoeffer said that this is the most difficult sacrifice of all. But that's what Jesus called on. Do you know what the new mentality says? I'm transformed by the renewing of my mind and I present my body a living sacrifice. No one has ever done both of those together as well as Jesus on the cross. The cross 
is the greatest example of thinking rightly and acting rightly and responding rightly to evil that there has ever been. And that is why Jesus can say and does, even in our context this morning, take up your cross the same way I did mine. But the question remains, are you? If not, will you? You know why? Because your response matters. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot of things about the situations that we face today that we cannot control. I cannot control the words and actions of others. I cannot control the actions of large groups or even what's taking place in our government. I can't control it. But what I can control by the power of the Holy Spirit is my response to all of it. And that, Father, is a responsibility I ask that you would help us to take much more seriously than many of us are doing. Whether it's be what we write on the internet, which I pray we would probably think through better by far and maybe not do it nearly as often. But Father, our interactions relationally as we respond to people, whether it's our words, our attitudes, public and private conversations, may the mindset of mercy prevail. May the cross of Jesus and his life and, yea, his death, and that he evoked or revoked our enemy status by his grace, may it have bearing, bearing on every response that we have because it matters. Help us to that end now, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.